welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. Good morning, church. Good morning. If you would, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. I know you're not used to me asking you to turn to Ephesians. I've not been uh, teaching out of that letter. Um, my father had hoped to finish the letter to the Ephesians this morning, but as most of you know, he, uh, he returned to the U.S. to be with the family since my grandfather passed away. I thank you so much for your prayers for them and your many words of appreciation. I really appreciate that. Um, they're doing well, and they're looking forward to Lord willing, being back with us soon. But um, this morning, my task is to walk us through Paul's final words in this letter, the letter to the Ephesians. There have been many different themes in this letter, but Paul seems to emphasize a theme of being rich in Christ, being rich in Christ. Now, before you get too nervous, I'm not talking about cars, boats, houses, And I don't believe that's what Paul was talking about either. Instead, this letter speaks about the riches of God's grace and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. It also talks about the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us, the unsearchable riches of Christ and the riches of his glory. This one letter talks about all of those. Throughout this letter, Paul has pointed our hearts and minds to the joy and hope that Christians can have because we have gained, are gaining, and will gain everything through Christ Jesus our Lord. God has opened up the vault of heaven and poured out His greatest treasures on all those who belong to Him. Some of His treasures listed in Ephesians include His grace, which brought us redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Also, future hope, because our inheritance is secure in Him. His kindness, because Christ first came as our Savior and not as the executioner that we deserved. Also, His power is listed, which the Spirit of God wields in us as we are filled by, the, by Him. All these heavenly treasures come to us through a person, Jesus Christ. We are not wealthy because we have managed to pick up a lot of possessions or hold a bunch of things in our hands. Instead, Christians are wealthy because both of our hands cling to Christ. And in Him we have received in the past and are receiving and will ultimately receive the riches of God. So many people think and act as if their devotion to God is an act of generosity on their part. They come to church, but not because they know that they need to hear the transforming word of God preached to their own soul. They come instead because God might be embarrassed by an empty church building. Or because my spouse or my children really need to hear the word and learn morality and become better people. 
They say in their heart, You're welcome, God. I'm here, a seat is filled, and my children will go on filling seats after me. You're welcome. They read the Bible and pray, but not because they confess their own souls is in in desperate need of hearing from God and responding to Him. In reality, they read God's Word as of listening to a confused grandparent in the nursing home because his words are sometimes confusing and he's really out of touch with reality today. And when they speak to God, they bypass all that nonsense that he was talking about and start asking God to open his checkbook again. If these people put money in the offering box, Thoughts fill their mind and heart about how amazing it would be if they didn't have this drain on their resources. Just imagine how well off I could be if I didn't have to pay for this religion to stay alive. Why can't the church provide for itself just like every other well-run institution? Why do I have to pay the bill? So many people think in their heart. And and this is people who would identify as a Christian on a religious ballot. So many think of God as the one who is needy. And they think of the Christian life as dutifully giving up my time, energy, and money so that God can have what He needs. But this way of thinking is a terrible mistake. It's a terrible mistake because God is in need of no thing. Our God is the one who gives all things to his people. And the Christian life brings us the greatest gain. Our creation, our life, our calling into the family of God, it is all a gift of God poured out of the immeasurable And unsearchable riches of God is what Paul says in Ephesians. We were slaves. He has made us heirs. We were poor. He is making us eternally rich. We were sentenced to death. He has granted us eternal life. When we devote our time, energy, and money for the glory of God, it is not God who becomes richer. We become richer in Christ. We receive the greatest gain. It may not look like it from the outside. You may be terrified to abandon your life to the glory of God, afraid because you know He will ask you to put to death sins that are so a part of you that it will feel like pulling out an eye or cutting off a hand. But realize this, that if you trust Him, If you believe in Him and abandon yourself to His goodness, then you will experience the greatest gain of living in the presence and in peace with God, now and for eternity. As the psalmist says of God, a day in your courts, one day in your courts is better than a thousand outside. Paul has made this case throughout the letter to the Ephesians, pointing to the riches Christians have gained, justification, are gaining now, sanctification, and will gain in eternity, glorification. 
with this immeasurable wealth freshly in their minds, he calls Christians then to stand up and pursue the greatest gain. In chapter 5 and 6, Paul calls Christians to go to radical lengths in their pursuit of the greatest gain. He tells wives to pursue the greatest gain by submitting to their own husbands as the church submits to Christ. He tells husbands to pursue the greatest gain by daily giving up their lives for their wives as Christ gave up His life for the church. He tells children to obey their parents in the Lord, to to honor their father and mother, even though their parents will make mistakes. They're not going to be perfect. He even tells slaves to obey their earthly masters because as they faithfully serve sinful men, God will eternally count it as service to him. This is radical behavior. And extremely uncommon in Paul's day, just as it is in our day. Even in the visible church. Even in the visible church, husbands and wives are too often at each other's throats. Children are in rebellion to their parents. And the idea of selflessly serving as a servant of another offends us. Because we are free and independent men and women. Why do we fail to pursue the greatest gain? Why do Christians go through seasons of life where it seems like one spiritual defeat after another? Why would I, because this is my personal story, why would I walk past a scullery full of dishes when I had the time, the energy, and the ability to lay down my life for my wife? Why would I do that? Why would you make something out of nothing on your drive to church? Stirring up an argument and throwing your family into disunity right as you're about to sit down and worship the Lord together. Why would a Christian husband shrink back from leading his wife and children in reading the word and in prayer? Thereby forfeiting the privilege of leading a family on the pilgrimage to heaven. Why would he do that? Why would a single Christian isolate themselves from the fellowship of the saints and invest all their time, energy, and money into careers, hobbies, or numbing themselves with entertainment? Paul says the reason we fail to pursue the greatest gain and experience seasons of spiritual defeat is because we have, fall, we have fallen victim to the schemes of the devil. Satan has fired his flaming arrows at us and we were not ready or prepared to fight against his weapons that inflame our heart's desires. So many Christians are living this life as if they are on spiritual holiday, kitted up in their spiritual swim trunks and sunscreen, lying down on a beach, just soaking up the rays till Jesus comes back. That's how so many Christians seem to be living their lives. But Paul challenges every Christian to stand up and put on the whole armor of God because we are not on spiritual holiday. There is no sandy beach, palm trees, or green, bluish water. Every Christian is actually, in reality, on a muddy, 
blood-soaked battlefield, and our enemy stands before us armed to the teeth. What good do you think swim trunks and sunscreen are going to be in this fight? With this in mind, let's look at Ephesians chapter 6, and we're going to read the whole passage together. I know that we've spent several weeks going through verses 10 through 17, but let's read the whole passage together for context, verses 10 through 20. Paul says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the, of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the reading of his word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for everyone who's sitting here this morning. I pray, Lord, that we are truly a family of believers, that everyone here is someone who loves you with love incorruptible. Yet, Lord, if there is anyone here who is sitting on the fence, who is stuck between the love of this world but also a fear of going to hell, Lord, I pray that today, that today would be the day that they would confess their lethargy, that they would confess their dividedness of heart, and that they would turn to you, that they would run to you, and that they would begin to pursue the greatest gain because our Lord first loved us and he has offered us every good thing. We love you. We pray for your blessing this morning as we look in your word, in the name of Jesus, amen. So briefly, let's review verses 10 through 17 in the armor, which we have already studied in weeks past. Verse 10 reminds us that we must be strong, but not in our own strength. Instead, we must be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, which is key to the rest of this passage. Just as all eternal riches are found in our God, in the same way the strength and ability to pursue the greatest gain is only comes through His might. Verse 11 gives us the theme for the remainder of this passage. Put on the whole armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm when the devil attacks through his various strategies or schemes. You will be often wounded in this fight, and there will be the temptation to give in, but the whole armor of God is God's answer for His children. It is, it is His way of escape for everyone who is a soldier in His army. It is His way of escape so that you can continue fighting on this battlefield. 
Verses 12 and 13 remind us that the church's fight is not against flesh and blood. We are not like the Israelites who came into the land of Canaan trying to fight physical armies. We do not fight in that sense. We do not physically fight against pagan kingdoms with sword and shield. Instead, the church proclaims that there will not be lasting peace in this present age. That Christians will face persecution in this world and that our fight is not to win a new holy land or to wipe out an indigenous people so that we can create heaven on earth. That was not Christ's purpose for his new covenant church, even though that has too often been the activity of the church for the past 2,000 years. In the New Testament, we see that Christ has commissioned his church to resist the attacks of the devil by putting on the whole armor of God and to conquer the human enemies of the cross by living and speaking the truth in love, even if it costs us our lives. By the time we get to verse 14, Paul has charged Christian soldiers to stand three times. This word stand means to endure, to withstand. This image reminds me of Tolkien's fictional tale, The Lord of the Rings. There are many times when characters are forced to decide if they are going to stand and fight or give up and allow darkness to prevail. At one point, Gandalf, a leader among free people, was being chased by this massive, dark, fiery creature which was intent on destroying Gandalf and his companions. As this terrible enemy advanced on Gandalf's company, Gandalf turns to face it and takes his stand on a bridge of stone that spans a great chasm. The dark creature approaches the bridge, intent on destroying or driving back Gandalf, but Gandalf holds his ground and stands firm in the middle of the bridge, saying to the enemy cloaked in fire and shadow, You cannot pass. The dark fire will not avail you. Go back to the shadow. You cannot pass. The battle then raged. But Gandalf would go on to endure the fire heat of battle and withstood the enemy shielding his friends in that fight. This is what it means to stand firm. Verses 14 through 17 go on to list the different armor that Christians have been given for the fight. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. With this list, we begin to envision a foot soldier who is ready for battle and able to stand firm on the battlefield with his Christian companions. But there is one more essential piece of armor for us to consider together. In verse 17, at the end of the verse, we come to our final piece of armor. Paul says to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It is interesting that this last piece of armor is attributed to the Holy Spirit. We would affirm that every piece of armor listed is wielded by the strength that God provides. It comes and it comes through the Spirit of God within us, this power to wield it. But the sword, which is the Word of God, is uniquely attributed to the, to the Spirit. One possible reason for 
the for attributing this weapon to the spirit is because it is not only a defensive weapon, but also an offensive weapon. The other pieces of armor that we have looked at are primarily for the defense of our own souls. The belt keeps us from tripping over ourselves. The breastplate protects our heart. The shoes protect our feet and give us firm ground to stand on. The shield blocks fiery arrows and the helmet protects our head from attack. But only the sword is designed to be both defensive and offensive. I believe for this reason Paul compares the word of God to the sword of the Spirit because with the word of God we can both defend against the lies of the devil and pierce through the enemy's thickest armor. A sword can be used defensively because an enemy because because when an enemy attempts to stab or slash you with their own weapon, a sword is able to parry or deflect the attack. The word of God is wielded this way when the lies of the devil are whispered into your ears or yelled at you from billboards or movies. Think of how Jesus responded to the devil's temptations while he was fasting in the wilderness. Three times the devil approached him, and three times Jesus parried the attack with the words of God, saying, First, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And finally he says, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. With this final saying, Jesus both parried the devil's attack and stepped in with an offensive strike because he quotes a passage that points out the depravity of Satan's fundamental desire. Satan's desire and the reason he was originally cast out of heaven is to turn all creation from worshiping their creator. He would have all angelic beings and humans alike bow down to him rather than almighty God. But with the word, Jesus guards his own soul and strikes at the depths of the enemy's rebellion. Now, it is important to point out that our words do not have the ability to bind Satan or to drive him away or to ever cause him concern. I know many of you, I've heard the stories, have experienced, have had experiences where churches were doing some very strange things like stomping on objects to depict their victory over Satan or cursing demons, or chanting strange songs that talk about this victory that they're going to have over him and his minions. And for this reason, it is important to point out that in Ephesians 6, verse 10, Paul clearly says that we are to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. We are not strong in and of ourselves. We can only stand if we fight through His might. Also, the weapon in our right hand is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. It is not our words. And we are not the one who is able to pierce through to the enemy. Victory comes as we wield the words of God, which are empowered by the Spirit of God. For this reason, let's, let's reject the nonsense we see around us where people are naming and claiming things in their own mind. Instead, let's be people of the Word, people who know the Word and speak the Word, trusting that the Spirit of God will take those words and then accomplish His good.
purposes. So what does the does wielding the sword of the Spirit look like for us practically? Well, it means that when you have been sick for a month in the hospital and it feels like death approaches, it means that you reject the lie of the devil that God has abandoned you or is neglecting you or doesn't love you. You parry the attack and guard your own soul with the words of God saying, It is written, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Or think about when a husband and wife choose for a time to make something out of nothing, allowing their verbal sparring to cause unnecessary friction in the home. And then it boils over into trying to hurt one another by threatening to sleep in another room or simply rolling over and giving the silent treatment or the cold shoulder. You may have thought you invented these tactics, but there's nothing new under the sun. In this situation, both husband and wife feel the victim, feel mistreated, feel hurt, feel misunderstood and underappreciated. This couple has already to some extent received wounds from the flaming darts of the devil. They are believing his lies and allowing their hearts to be lured by his schemes. But wielding the sword of the Spirit means that the husband restrains his feelings of hurt and underappreciation, which have now boiled over into anger and says to his heart, It is written do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil he says to his heart also it is written husbands love your wives as christ loved the church and gave himself up for her wielding the sword of the spirit means that the wife though stung by harsh words and though feeling completely misunderstood it means, though, that she wields the sword and proclaims to her mind and heart, It is written, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. She also says to her heart, It is written, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. In moments like these, the real enemy is not the infection that may kill you in the hospital or the spouse who misunderstands you. The real enemy is the devil who would inflame your sinful desires and passions and cause you to leave your Lord because of something are happening around you or to you in this life. 
But can you see the difference it makes in the life of a Christian when they pick up the sword of the Spirit and stand firm while facing the real enemy? <clears throat> With the sword of the Spirit in our hands, the whole armor of God is complete. But in verse 18, Paul describes the disposition or the attitude of a Christian who is ready for battle. He says in verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Prayer isn't given as another piece of armor, but instead is described as the constant disposition or attitude of a Christian warrior. A Christian warrior doesn't beat his chest with bravado, daring the enemy to challenge him. A soldier for Christ isn't someone who wins life's battles because they are able to repeatedly convince themselves that they are good, that they are beautiful, and that they are smart. We do not find success on the battlefield because we, are the most the we know the most theological facts or because we follow more religious rules than anyone else. Christians win battles and find victory in this life because we stand in the power of God's might, trusting in His armor, wielding His word powerfully through the Holy Spirit, and humbly calling on our Heavenly Father throughout the entire fight. Praying at all times doesn't mean that we do nothing else. Or that we must live in solitude so that no one interrupts my prayers. Instead, praying always is about communion, relationship, unity, dependence on the Creator. For the, crea for the Christian, it means that God is right here next to me throughout the whole day. He isn't distant, far removed from us in some lofty palace above the clouds. Instead, He is on my left and on my right. He goes before you and He stands behind. Praying always is the result of knowing that His grace is the only reason you still have strength to stand another minute or lift your shield and your sword one more time. Humble prayer before God is the disposition or attitude of a Christian warrior. In verses 18 through 20, Paul gives us one example of what to pray for while serving on the battlefield. He says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. So generally for all the saints. But then also specifically in verse 19, he says, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Here again we see an example of pursuing the greatest gain, even in the way we pray. Paul says that he is an ambassador in chains, which means he was a preacher of the gospel who was put in prison because he just wouldn't stop preaching. But in the midst of this terrible situation, he requested for prayer that he would be given the right words to speak at the right time so that the mystery of the gospel would be proclaimed among pagan prisoners, servants, guards, and rulers alike. Now, I'm not saying that it would be wrong to pray for release 
or that Paul never prayed that prayer. But here we see the priority, the preeminence of a thing that Paul requests. His priority was for the gospel to be proclaimed with boldness throughout either his life or death. Because this was his commander's orders to proclaim the gospel. And following his commander's orders, no matter what, brought him the greatest gain. It will bring us the greatest gain. Paul's pursuit of the greatest gain impacted the way he prayed, even from prison, even during suffering. In conclusion, Paul writes these words in verses 21 through 24. He says, So that you may also know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that we that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. I have one final question for you before we take communion together. Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible? Incorruptible means immortal. It is the inability for something to break down or decay. Do you, do I, have this fierce love for our Lord? Or is he nothing more than a fire escape? A family tradition? Or a senile old man that you humor for the time being as long as he continues to open his checkbook? If you come to the point where you realize you've been riding the fence, stuck between a love for the world, but also your fear of hell, then I plead with you, give up your pursuit of lesser things. Confess your indifference toward a holy God. Pick up the whole armor of God and pursue the greatest gain. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you again for your word. I thank you that it is not the words of men. I thank you that it is not outdated. That your, I, pr- I thank you that your spirit, your Holy Spirit, empowers your word wherever it is faithfully proclaimed. Whether it be by parents teaching their children, a mother teaching her young son to love the Lord and fear him, or a father who sits down and reads the word and prays with his family, whether it's a single person who sits on their own yet has joy abundantly because you are with them, or if it's here in our church building where we sing the word, where we read the word and where we proclaim the word, I thank you that your Holy Spirit has empowered it and that it will not return void. It will go forth and accomplish its purpose. Lord, would you do that for us today? Thank you also for this meal of remembrance we're about to celebrate. Thank you for communion, the Lord's table. I pray that you would bless this time, that we as a church would use this time for reflection on what you have done, for introspection, to look into our own hearts and make sure we're not living as hypocrites, but that we truly are in the faith. 
Lord, it will also be a time of restoration where we look on our left and our right and we see if there is anyone in this church who we are not living in right fellowship with. Would you bless this time? Would you soften our hearts? And would we leave here this morning rejoicing in the great gain that we have in our God? Amen.